Thank you for tuning in online this morning. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you where you are and can turn in them to Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3 as we continue our walk through this book. I think this morning this passage of Scripture is certainly very relevant and applicable. Not that Scripture ever is irrelevant or not applicable, but I think this idea of peace or fellowship is something that is particularly relevant to the times in which we find ourselves. We don't seem to be settled. We don't seem to be at rest. There seems to be a lot of unrest. There seems to be a sense that we're not really sure what is going on, what is going to happen next, how things might change, and with those changes, how we are going to respond. And so we seem to be on the back foot uh, quite a bit, especially recently. And of course, this idea of peace is not just peace in the midst of circumstances, but I think more importantly, peace as it relates to relationships. And so I hope that we desire peace in our relationships with each other, but certainly during these times we have found ourselves in almost two years now, there has been a lot of conflict. We have our opinions and our perspectives on things. Those opinions and perspectives have no doubt even changed during the course of all of this. And yet, we do not always feel at liberty to share those thoughts and opinions and perspectives, especially with those who do not agree with us. And certainly in those relationships that we value more than others. And so relationships that are mere acquaintances or primarily, if not exclusively, maybe online, nameless, faceless, somewhat anonymous, we may feel a little bit more at liberty to share our true thoughts and opinions. And yet in those relationships that we value more, we want to keep the peace, we might say. And so we do not open up or share and and yet that doesn't quite sit right with us either because we want to be uh, who we are. We want to be able to express our thoughts and opinions and, of course, worthwhile fashions, God-honoring fashions. But a lot of, in a lot of our families and amongst a lot of our friend groups, it's almost like we've settled into this ceasefire as opposed to true peace and lasting fellowship. It seems, especially with the Christmas holidays not that long behind us and the restrictions that were in place for those, and even during Thanksgiving, that it has been a long time since we truly feasted, since we truly ate at another person's table and were surrounded by true love and peace and fellowship and unity, where the laughs were easy and the hugs were frequent. We seem to be isolated, and the more we are isolated, the more we long for peace and for fellowship. Perhaps even during this time, we have felt somewhat disconnected from God himself. We have asked questions of why, why us, why now, why these things? 
And uh, we have a great deal of confusion by times and frustration and even anger. We also have a lot of ignorant confidence, which is a bad combination, making bold statements about that which we know little. And so in all of these things, there seems to be great unrest and instability. And in the midst of this comes what may not be the most frequent offering offered in the nation of Israel, but certainly uh, the one that was looked forward to the most, anticipated the most. It was a celebratory offering. It was an offering that immediately led into feasting, community, communal eating and fellowshipping after a reminder that we have now had fellowship with God and so can have fellowship with one another. This is the offering that was offered at the dedication of the temple by Solomon. Hundreds of thousands of animals were offered in that sacrifice and there was a national feast day for Israel. This is the peace or the fellowship offering. So let's look at it then this morning. We will look at it in a bit more detail as we finish through the end of chapter 7 as we continue to progress through Leviticus. But it is introduced here as the third and final voluntary offering and number three of five different types of offerings. And so we have in chapter 3 then the laws surrounding the peace or fellowship offerings. Leviticus chapter 3. Starting to read of verse 1, we're going to read the first five verses and then the final verse of the chapter, verse 17. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand or press his hand into the head of the offering, kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons the priest shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 17. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. This is the word of God. And so as has become our custom, we want to look at what this fellowship offering entailed. What did it look like, and then we want to walk through some of the symbolism uh, of it, and then, of course, how it relates to us through Jesus Christ. And so in similar fashion to the burnt offering, an animal from the herd was brought. As you read the rest of the chapter, and hopefully you've pre-read the chapter, or certainly will read the rest of the chapter later on, a sheep or a goat could be offered as well as a bull from the herd uh, or a cow from the herd. Uh, and uh, the other instructions are there for it. This offering then comes to the tent of entrance. And as the burnt offering, hands are pressed into the head of the offering. Uh, atonement is implied, as we'll see in just a moment. The worshiper then kills the animal 
and takes out from the animal all of the fat of the animal. Now, I don't know about your dietary uh, habits. Some people enjoy fat and uh, believe that it's the best part of a meal that includes meat. Uh, some do not like the fat and cut the fat away and find it disgusting. But certainly in this culture, the fat was highly prized. It was viewed as the best part of the animal, and the best cuts of meat would have had the fat in them. And yet, in the nation of Israel, fat is not to be eaten by the Israelites. It is to be given as an offering to God. And so all the fat around the GI tract, around the intestines, and including the kidney and the long lobe of the liver, and in the case of the sheep, the broad-tailed sheep that they had at this time, at the backbone, the tail was also cut off, included a lot of fat in that. All of these things were then given to Aaron and his sons, the priests, and they were burned on the altar. As we know from chapter 7, the breast and the right thigh of whatever animal was offered was then given to Aaron and his sons, the priest, for their portion to eat. And then the rest of the animal was eaten either that same day that it was offered or at least by the next day, depending on the reason why the offering was made. And we'll look into a little bit more of that uh, again as we look at it in more detail. Blood, of course, is involved, and so the blood was collected in a bowl as the animal was bled out, which is the proper way of killing the animal, so the blood was removed from any of the meat, because the Israelites were not to ever eat blood. Blood is symbolic of life, and life belongs to God. And so again, the blood was taken, it was uh, splashed over the altar, symbolic again of life in the area where there is death. Life has been offered. And it cleanses, in a sense, not only the worshiper, but in, in some senses, even the environment. It's offered as a sacrifice, life for a life. And all of this relates to this uh, particular offering. But again, as mentioned, the difference is that immediately after this offering was made, a feast then would take place. And it was a feast not just for the worshiper, but also for his family and any other Israelites that would participate in this. Clearly, a worshiper could not eat all of the meat that was left over after the fat was burned and the uh, holy portion was given to Aaron and his sons. And so people were invited to come together and to feast together. This was an, uh, an offering then of celebration, uh, a fellowship offering, a communal offering. And in that way, highly anticipated in the nation of Israel. And so let us walk through then just some of these key points, some that we've already mentioned and others that we want to bring out. Notice that the fellowship offering then, verses 1 through 16, it is reminiscent of or points to peace or fellowship with both God and man. It's a reminder that because of the burnt offering upon which the peace offering sits and is offered, we have peace now with God and with our fellow man. And so it is a picture then of fellowship, a picture that is symbolized in the offering of the best part of the animal to God and the offering of the next best part of the animal, many would say, to the priests and the priest's sons, and then the rest of the animal offered to the community in a communal meal and or feast. It pictured and was in actuality a, a communal reality. It, it was uh, the idea of fellowship. And so uh, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 18, we also are told that it was offered for three different reasons. 
It was either offered as praise or due to a vow. We're not going to belabor that point because we're going to see that when we get to chapter 7. But it could be a spontaneous free will offering of thanksgiving to God. It could come at the end of a vow. A vow had been completed, and now this peace offering, this fellowship offering is offered uh, at the end of that vow. Or it could be offered as praise to God for specific answers to prayer or provision in a time of need. Thank you, God, for how you uh, relate to us. And because we have fellowship with you, because we are in relationship with you, you bless us in these many ways. Where the grain offering or the cereal offering was specific to the harvest, specific to our daily bread, this peace or fellowship offering was offered when God uh, answered specific prayers or uh, provided the worshiper with specific blessings. Notice that it could be either a male or a female, but again in verse 1, as with the burnt offering, it must be without defect. And again, we are reminded in through and through this symbol that we ought always to give our best to God. God is deserving of far more than our leftovers. God is deserving of far more of our time than what we have left after we give our time to everything else that we want to do. God is worthy of more than our resources that are left over after we have bought and spent and, and, and used it for the things that we want it to be used for. God is to be given that which is our best. And so these animals that are offered should have no visible defects. They're not animals that are lame or injured or uh, they were going to be uh, perhaps die of natural causes anyway. Well, I'll give that to God because I'm not going to be able to use it anyway. God deserves much more than our leftovers. Atonement then in verse 2 is implied in this offering. As with the burnt offering, it begins with the worshiper leaning on the head of this animal. Again, symbolizing his sins being transferred to the animal that that was going to be sacrificed on his behalf. Life was going to be given for another life. So death had to take place for atonement of sin. And so that is implied. With the burnt offering, the whole offering, the whole animal was offered because that was atonement for sin. This is, has a different purpose, and yet atonement is still implied anytime blood is shed. In verses 3 and 4, it's fairly graphic and descriptive, but the fatty portions are the only portions that are offered up on the altar. We are not told why, but it is postulated that perhaps it's because this is the best part of the animal. This is the part of the animal that is most highly prized. Some other thoughts again come into this. Some think that because the kidneys and the liver are described in the Old Testament as the seat of our emotions, we might say, I love you with all my heart. If we lived at this time, you might say, I love you with both of my kidneys. And we might find that a little bit strange, but the idea was the kidneys and the liver were the housing of our emotions, the depth of our souls. And so because this offering was an offering uh, thanking God for the peace that only he can bring between us and him and us and others, that perhaps this kidney and liver, or lobe of the liver, were offered as symbolic of that. Another thought is that because the liver in particular, as well as kidneys, was oftentimes used in pagan cultures for divination, for trying to determine the future and these sorts of things. Uh, today we may use tarot cards or a magic eight ball instead of kidneys and livers, 
Back then, soothsayers and diviners would use these parts of the animal in order to try to determine the weather uh, or different things. And so in order to discourage the nation of Israel from doing that, these things were to be offered on the altar. We're not sure why. I think perhaps the best uh, answer that we have for the fatty portions being offered is that once again, the best goes to God. Notice in verse 5 that it is burned on top of the burnt offering of the whole offering. Again, symbolizing and reminding us that the only way that we can have peace with God is if our sins have been covered, our sins have been atoned for. And so the peace that comes through Jesus Christ for us as believers in him, the rending of the temple veil in two only comes after Jesus Christ offers himself as a burnt offering. Atonement must precede fellowship, peace, and unity with God. Sinners cannot be in relationship with a thrice holy God. And so atonement must be made. And so the burnt offering that is offered at least twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, as a perpetual offering to the Lord, any peace offerings then that were brought to the tabernacle and then the temple were burned on top of the burnt offering, the remnants thereof. And what a beautiful picture that peace with God only comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have read in Romans 5, 1 and 2. And then we notice that the rest was eaten together as a meal. The priests were involved, the worshiper and his family and friends were involved, the community was involved, because after this there was a great celebration. A vow had been completed, or a prayer had been answered, or a blessing had been given, or just the worshiper was feeling, I want to praise God, I just want to thank him for who he is and for my relationship with him and so this offering was given, and after it was given, a great meal took place, a communal event, a communal feasting took place. Now we notice in the second place this morning, there are two prohibitions in verse 17. You cannot eat fat or blood, and this is uh, reiterated in, in chapter 7, and we'll get there uh, in due time. But notice it'll be a statute forever throughout your generations. This is a perpetual prohibition. This is not just for this time, this is for all generations of Israelites. Do not eat fat and do not eat blood. These things are to last down through the generations. And so the Israelites are to teach this to their children and to their grandchildren. When you offer praise to God, when you offer thanksgiving to God, when you are reminded of the peace that you have with God because of the atonement of the sacrifice, do not eat the fat or the blood. This relates then to every aspect of life. Notice what it says in 17b, in all your dwelling places. This isn't something that is just at the tabernacle when the offering is given. This is in every aspect of life. Remember, the best goes to God because it is all all His. And life goes to God because life is His. And so the Israelites have a high view of God and a high view of the sanctity of God. Of life, They have a high view of God and what God values. And these things then are continually before them and, and a reminder to them, not just when they offer the sacrifice, but God says in all of your dwelling places, as you go about your day-to-day life and the mundane tasks of life, remember, God is to be forced and foremost in our thoughts and in our actions and in our attitudes Our life is his, and as believers in Jesus Christ, now this side of the legal demands being nailed to the cross, we are twice his because he has given us life and he's given us new life in Christ. 
And so the best is his, all life is his, and we are to remember that no matter where we're at. Notice in the third place, it's a reminder of a future hope because he says, in all your dwelling places. They are currently dwelling in tents, but that is not going to be a permanent reality. They are moving through the wilderness to go into the land of promise and there to get permanent, more permanent dwelling places. And so even embedded into this prohibition against eating fat and blood, God reminds them of the promise that he has given to them. And even though it's taken hundreds of years since the promise was first given to Abraham to see its fulfillment, God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. No matter where you dwell, he says, whether it's in tents currently or in more permanent dwelling places in the land of Canaan, remember who God is and remember to always have him at the center of everything that you are, do, and think. And then notice the two prohibitions themselves. In the first place, they cannot eat the fat. And again, we are reminded that the best is to be given to God. As with offering an animal without blemish, so with this peace offering, this fellowship offering, God has given his best to us. God always gives his best to us. God gives himself to us. It is all his and yet he gives it to us. He does not require it, as the psalm says. God says through the psalmist, I do not need to eat. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet there is a reminder here, a symbol here, that the best is always God's, because it's all God's. And so it it, it reminds us and calls to our remembrance, what do we value? Better, who do we value? And do we value that we are at peace with God? Do we value what he has accomplished for us through Christ by the Spirit? Is that valuable to us? It ought to be. And so when we give the things that are most valuable to us, to God, back to God as an offering to him for all that he has given to us, it is a perpetual reminder that it is all his. Everything we have comes from his hand. And then, of course, they cannot eat the blood. Life is God's. And, and in the concept of life, re- regeneration, reconciliation, salvation, all of this is only accomplished through God. And so they cannot eat blood. They are not in control. They are not sovereign. They are not the masters of their fates, nor the captains of their souls. God is in control of all things. And this offering reminds them of that, and it ought to remind us of the same. And so as we close this morning then, notice that Jesus is our peace offering. We read earlier Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and this is a representative passage, certainly not exhaustive. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And this type of peace, again, is not just a mere absence of from conflict, but it is in fact a deep-seated, a deep-rooted peace that comes regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what others think about us or how others treat us, regardless of the situation that we may find ourselves in, God is our peace because of Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the one that took our sins and nailed them to the cross. And so now we can have peace with the one who made us and we can be at peace with others 
that are also being remade by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a, what a beautiful thing an environment of peace is. And it seems to be ever elusive in our culture. More and more, people seem to be content to stay at opposite ends of a room and yell at each other than to come to the table, eat together, fellowship together, share together. People talk about safe spaces, by which they mean a space where I can say or do whatever I want without challenge or accountability. And that's not a safe space. A true safe space is a space in which we know that our sins have been taken care of by Jesus Christ, and so we have his righteousness on us, and our sinfulness has been taken care of by him, and so we can be in God's presence, not as a lie, not hypocritically, not falsely, not as a mere ceasefire, but God knows everything about us, things about ourselves that we are even unaware of, and yet loves us more deeply than we can possibly fathom. It is not a fake peace. It is not a peace that is made in the absence of recognizing the conflict that was there in the first place. The problems have been dealt with. Even as Martina said, it is not a denial of problems or issues. It is dealing with the problems and issues so there can truly be peace. And it is the same then in his church and the bride of Christ amongst ourselves that because of the forgiveness that we have received from God, we can forgive one another and we can be at peace with one another. True peace. Not that we just sort of close our eyes and turn a blind eye to, to problems or conflict. That we just don't address things. We just always smile and laugh and share jokes and don't take things seriously. No. That word that was spoken or that promise that was broken or that that. Sin that was committed, those things are actually addressed. They are talked about, they are discussed through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ so that true peace can be as a result. Where we can come and discuss our different perspectives on things, different opinions on things. We always come submissive to the word of God, submissive to the leadership that he has put into place, submissive to him ultimately so that there can be true peace. And so Jesus Christ makes peace possible with God and man. And again, not a fake peace, not a mere ceasefire, not simply trying to find a compromise, but real, true shalom, actual peace. What a blessing that is in a world that is pulled apart by division. And we seem on a daily basis to find new ways to divide, new things to argue about. Things that seem to be long settled are now being called into question. And so new types of division. Satan is the father of lies. He's the, he's the originator of division. He loves division. So when we are isolated and divided from each other, Satan laughs. That is not who God created us to be. God created us to be in community with him and with each other. Not to be isolated. And God created us for unity. Not uniformity. We are not all the same and not unanimity. We will not always agree on all things, but as we saw last year when we went through Romans 14, as a family we come together, we share love with each other and respect and dignity and integrity. We talk things through. We pray together. We love one another. And while we do not always agree, 
We ought always to be united by the blood of Jesus Christ, and only he can make that possible. All those deep hurts, all those sins, our own and others, have actually been addressed. They're not swept under the rug. They're not ignored. They have really been taken care of at the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can have peace. That is what this offering is about. To come together and feast together is only possible because of the shed blood of the animal. And in our case, because of the shed blood of Christ. Notice he brings us into community in the second place. This meal would have brought into the, the Jews further into community, the Israelites into community. They were grumblers and complainers. So are we. They had a lot to grumble and complain about, or so they thought. We don't have food. We don't have water. My feet hurt. This heat is awful. Why do we, are we out here? We were better off in Egypt. They had no doubt conflict with each other. His tent is actually on my section of the desert. I'm sure they found new ways to fight. And they are no different from us. That is absolutely the same as us. And yet, when they offered this offering of peace, this fellowship offering, and then they come out of the tent of meeting, come, let us cook the rest of the meat, and let us eat together. Let us feast together. And if you read Acts 2, 44 through 47, the early church came together. If someone had need, someone that could provide for that need did so. They had common property in a sense, or they sold their property so that there could be common good amongst the believers. They ate meals together. They celebrated communion and the Lord's Supper together. They fellowshiped with one another. They prayed together. They heard God's word together. It was deeper than just a Sunday gathering, although it wasn't less than a southern, uh, Sunday gathering. It was certainly more than just a Sunday gathering. These were the relationships that mattered the most in their lives. These were the friendships that carried them through. These were the things that brought them together. They were not brought together by the things that they mutually enjoyed, a show that they, they all liked to watch, or a particular vehicle that they all liked to drive, or a hobby that they all liked to participate in. It was not common interest that brought them together. What brought them together was the shed blood of Jesus Christ on their behalf, which meant that that would have looked a very strange group indeed, introverts and extroverts and individuals that had these perspectives and these perspectives. And we talked about even the disciples of Jesus Christ, Simon the Zealot with Matthew the tax collector. How do those two guys be together following Jesus Christ because of Jesus? It brought community, and it should bring community to us as well, the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. As we mentioned last week in the third place, he gives communion new meaning. This offering, perhaps, is the most closely associated with the Lord's Supper. The burnt offering, Jesus has shed blood on our behalf. He is our atoning sacrifice. The grain or the cereal offering, Jesus Christ is the bread of life. His body was broken and his blood was shed. But the result is the peace offering. Because of his sacrifice on the cross... The veil in the temple was rent in two. We have access now to God the Father. We have peace with God the Father and with one another because of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful passage to go through on what was supposed to be a communion Sunday, but God is sovereign and knows all things. So when we gather next for communion, it invests communion with new meaning. Jesus Christ is our peace offering. He is our fellowship offering. He prays for his disciples in John's gospel, in John 17. Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. We are one. May they be one, one with us and one with each other. One of the greatest hallmarks of someone who says they believe in Jesus Christ is unity. It is so tenuous. It is so rare nowadays, unfortunately. 
And what a beautiful thing that at this time we have it at Grace Baptist Church. Pray. Never cease to pray that that unity continues. Because we are being tested. We have been tested at points in our history. We will continue to be tested. And we are being tested during this time, certainly. And yet, we have remained united. I pray that that is not a false unity, but that is a true unity because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That that's what brings us together. Notice he motivates worship. I want to read this passage to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. As the passage says, this was to be something that was done even in their dwelling places. Notice Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is that? That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, what we have just done this morning and continue to do day to day. And then what does he immediately go into in verse 16? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our worship then, as we've been talking so much, looking upward and outward, we offer sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice to God. What is that sacrifice of praise? Lips that acknowledge him. Lips that give him the credit, give him the honor and glory that he so richly deserves. But immediately then, what does that worship do? It immediately expresses itself in how we interact with each other. If we have fellowship with God, then we can have fellowship with each other. For all those that have fellowship with God now, there ought to be rich fellowship for one another. And so as he says, do good to one another. In, a, in, a, in an act of thanksgiving for all that God has done. And again, when we understand that God is all we need, and that God already owns all we have, it changes how we live. It changes how we look at one another. It changes how we see the world around us. We were talking on our uh, call with the pastors about Jesus talking about to his disciples. They, have, they, they were having an argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus talking about those things about the kingdom, that the first should be last and the last first in this reality. But what's interesting in that passage is Jesus had just talked about the fact that he was going to be crucified. He was going to suffer and die. And it says in the passage the disciples didn't know what he meant. And so they just kind of brushed it off. And then they go into this conversation on the road. So are you going to be the greatest? Maybe you're going to be the greatest. The reality is, the more we value ourselves, the less we value those around us. And the more we think about ourselves, the less we see others. Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, the one who had called them to follow me, is in the depth of a despair in his soul because he knows what he's about to face. He knows what's coming. The cross is before him. And he openly now shares that with the disciples, looking from them perhaps for some words of comfort or just their presence. And yet what can they look at? And the only thing they can think about is themselves. When circumstances don't go our way, when situations arise that we don't like, our response oftentimes is to go insular and we cease to see the people around us. And yet what Jesus calls us to, because of his sacrifice for us, is worship to God. And then that immediately has us looking outward around to those around us. How can we serve? How can we help? If God has satisfied all my needs, that frees me to look to how I can help others with theirs. But if I do not believe that God has satisfied all my needs in Christ, then I'm looking to him to do that or I'm looking to other things to do that. 
and it causes me to withdraw from those around us. And so the peace offering, Jesus is our peace, motivates our worship. It helps us then in the fifth place this morning, in the third point, to value God above all. Our key verses for Grace Baptist Church in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. These are the two greatest commandments. Love God above all things and love each other as much as we already love ourselves. Love God, love people, serve others, worship, connect, and serve. It's our core values. Do we look like that, though, amongst ourselves? Are we actually doing that as Grace Baptist Church? We can only because of Christ, only because of his atoning offering, his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. It causes us to have peace, not just a temporary cessation from conflict, but a deep-seated understanding that God is our Father and provides for us all we need. Jesus Christ is our brother and has provided his righteousness and has taken our, the penalty for our sinfulness on himself. And the Holy Spirit as our guide and our comforter and our friend along the way. If we have all things in him, then we can value him above all else. And we can then value others above ourselves. This is what we have been called to. We have not been called to attempt to change our circumstances. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Do you understand, do we understand that everybody on Facebook could tomorrow change their opinion on this whole thing that we're going through to match yours. You could win every Facebook argument from now until the end of your life. Everybody could come around and see your opinion on all the things that are surrounding the reality right now. And yet all of that could happen and your friends and families and neighbors and coworkers and acquaintances could still die and go to hell. Because it's not about your opinion on all of this stuff. It's about Jesus Christ the righteous. Do we value God above all and do we value human souls? Do we value them the way that God does? Do we see others the way God sees them? That's what this fellowship, this peace offering is about. It actually secures for us that one of the things that we have is our deepest need. It is possible. God has done it. And that ought to change the way we see things and react to things and look at things. And notice then lastly this morning, he gives hope for the future. What is one of the final meals that we will eat together? The marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. That great feast that God has called individuals to as the bride of his son, Jesus Christ. And I love that. We just read that in Matthew's gospel in our Bible reading plan. The king has a wedding and he calls all the invited guests. Some of them ignore him. Some of them go about their tasks. Say, I'm too busy. Some even take his servants that deliver the invitation and beat them or even kill them. So what does the king do? He says, go out into the highways, go out all around the city and find those that are homeless, find those that are not uh, socioeconomically ahead, find those that have been pushed to the margins of society, invite them to the wedding. Jesus Christ invites us as sinners, undeserving of his mercy and grace, to feast with him. And this feast, this meal, every meal that we have together as believers in Jesus Christ, every month we have the Lord's Supper together, it is always looking forward to that meal that we will one day eat together in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will celebrate together the marriage of Jesus Christ with his bride, the church. What a glorious hope that we have, especially in the midst of great division and hurt and pain. And so Grace Baptist Church, my prayer for you this morning is, that you would first of all know this peace. And this peace is not a feeling, 
And it is not just a set of circumstances for a period of time. It's a person. Jesus Christ, he is the prince of peace. And no matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're suffering, and we all suffer, if you have Jesus Christ in the midst of that, you have all that you will ever need. What a beautiful thing to have Jesus Christ, our peace. To in the midst of all that this world brings us, to have true and lasting peace. And then what peace that brings in our relationships with others. We're freed from thinking about ourselves and, and, and whining and complaining about our situation. To look out to those who are hurting, to those who have needs. Because our needs have been met in Jesus Christ. The peace that he can bring. And then the peace that he can use us to bring to others. I pray that that is our experience today. And as we continue to move forward, let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather in this way online. It is not as we wish it would be, but uh, we are thankful for the technology and for the ability to be able to do this. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. There's so much here and so much more that could have been said. But this reality of peace, shalom, or fellowship, that truly we can be fully known and also fully loved. As our brother Timothy Keller has said, <clears throat> to be loved but not fully known is shallow. It's not real. Because an individual may love the person they think us to be, but they do not love who we actually are. And to be known but not loved is one of our greatest fears. If people knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me. And yet in Jesus Christ... Because of Christ by the Spirit, Father, you know us and love us. In fact, it's because you know us and love us that you sent your Son to die for us and your Holy Spirit to indwell us. You have a deep and abiding love for those whom you know intimately. What a beautiful reality. And this offering is a picture of it. And Father, I pray that we would know that reality. Jesus Christ, our peace offering. Jesus Christ, our fellowship offering. We would know him deeper and deeper every day. And that we'd thereby share him with those around us. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.